Good morning. It's Sunday, February the 16th, 2020. Or is it 2020? I don't know. Show number 117. Let's do it. And good morning. Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Gummo. This is the 117th installment of... (laughs) I don't know what you want to call it. I don't know. What What do we call it? It's not a... Is it a podcast? Is it a radio show? Who knows? Well, anyhow, whatever. Who cares? Uh, welcome to uh, back to this. Uh, and uh, as I said, I'm your host, Gomo. We've been doing this now. I've been doing this now for close to almost, well, what, uh, four and a half years, almost five years. Uh, you know, I, I had no idea that I would ever, ever do a podcast. <laughs> Uh, and anyone who knows me know, that knows me well knows that uh, I'm really sincere with that uh, thought regard, uh, especially when I started this thing uh, almost, well, you know, close to five years ago. You know, I like to, you know, round it up, I guess. But, uh, you know, it, I've learned a lot along the way and I've had a lot of fun doing it. I've met a lot of interesting people. And, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, you know, and here we are. It's uh, the end of February, and uh, it's uh, still winter time here in the uh, United States. Uh, not really, um, <laughs> not really too many things to complain about by my standards as far as how the weather seems to wrap itself around life. Uh, you know, no snow. It's always a good thing. No snow. (laughs) Certainly feeling the, um, certainly feeling the effects of, uh, the lack of it though. You know, I'm, I'm so used to, you know, wearing ice boots, (laughs) shoveling snow, God knows what else, you know, throwing your car out, scraping your windshield, spraying alcohol ethanol on your car handles so they move you know after the ice storms and all of that (laughs) boy i do not miss any of that i tell you and uh well you know so it's uh i'm having a pretty good winter and hopefully you are as well i've been uh you know i had to (laughs) 
had to get on my diet here. I uh, <laughs> moved back to Florida and with the sudden, well, you know, just moving back here and then reestablishing re uh, re old friend friendships, relationships. Uh, everything, you know, in the South, uh, <laughs> everything is basically... Uh, it surrounds food, right? It's always good food. And uh, I have been part of that exception since I've been back. You know, it's, hey, come on, uh, come, why don't you come hang out with us? And, you know, we're, we've got some something good and smoked and something really good on the grill or a good restaurant to try. And, uh, you know... Uh, my colleague uh, that I work with, uh, <laughs> he introduced me to uh, a fantastic uh, Indian restaurant uh, where it's, it, you think that the food isn't really that well received, but oh my goodness, definitely have a uh, sustainable spot for lunch. Anyhow, just overdoing it with the food, of course, you know, so I've, I promptly <laughs> gained close to, uh, well, I'm not going to say, well, 15 pounds, right? So <laughs> I'm like, I, you know, uh, you step on the scale at Publix and, you know, you really don't believe it until, until you step on the scale in your, in your um, shower and then you realize... <laughs> That, uh, all, you know, as with anything, all good things must come to an end. And so the good food really had to, <laughs> I really had to slam the door on all of the good barbecue and seafood and hamburgers and hot dogs and all, all anything good in, you know, in that regard, just, yeah, I was tearing it up. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, it's, you know, it, it can creep up, it can creep up fast on you. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've always tried to promote somewhat of, of good health and standards. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm definitely not your bastion for healthy living, but I, you know, I try to do the right thing, you know, eat the right foods and, and so forth. And so <laughs> moving back home to Florida really changed that perspective. Uh, but, uh, I don't know. You know, I took uh, took took some time, <laughs> took a real brief moment to to think about uh, where my um, weight stands. Um, so yeah, uh, a little bit of pudginess to me these days, uh, but still, I haven't uh, I haven't outgrown the t-shirt. Uh, so and I am, I've begun to significantly decrease <laughs> the good food. And the end, you know, that's well, whatever. How about you? How is your winter coming along? Are you enjoying yourself? Hopefully it hasn't been too brutal where you've been, but I'm probably assuming that it is. I know a lot of my friends back in Chicago really had it tough last week. Single digit temperatures and then snow and then single digit temperatures and uh wanted to say hey to my friends up in chicago i miss all of you all of you i really do i really do i miss 
I just <laughs> miss you guys. And, uh, you know, but hey, you know, the other day when you guys were in single digits, I was jumping in the pool. So, uh, yeah, I miss you guys, but <laughs> you know. Anyhow, life is progressing uh, specifically in a great direction. Uh, working with uh, my colleagues, I was able to uh, ob obtain, um, you know, I've got a project that I'm, I'm going to be starting in a couple weeks, and it involves raspberry pies. And I really want to, I really want to sort of, so I've got this gigantic computer case, and uh, my intentions are to really fill this thing up with Raspberry Pis and make, make a supercomputer. And so, uh, yeah, I have a seven foot HP um, <laughs> computer cabinet. And uh, yeah, I think I absolutely will be filling it up with the Raspberry Pis uh, soon. And uh, I'll take photos along the way and I'm actually going to post them on the website. So, um, well, I'll have I'll have someone post them on the website, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, it's something that I want to play around with, and uh, you know, just kind of uh, you know sharpen the knives a little bit. I'll keep everybody uh, up to date on that, but yeah. So my plan is to definitely build <laughs> a Raspberry Pi supercomputer, and we'll see how that comes along. You know, supercomputers have been around for quite a while. You know, they've they've been the mainstay uh, of um, high-end technical computing for years, and uh, you know they um, they have their useful points. I'll tell you that for sure. Uh, so, listen, uh, real quick. Uh, I don't want to sit here too long and babble on, but I wanted to run through some of these uh, news briefs with you guys. Uh, real quick and just so you know something for you to sort of heads up yourself so on you know because yeah you know, i kind of you know i get feedback from you guys right you guys do write me uh and uh sometimes i do check the email i, I do have more time to check email uh these days um you know since i'm not spending four hours a day on a commuter train uh and so uh, you know, uh, one of the one of the interesting um, pieces of you know we're always talking about malware. Everyone is always speaking about malware, and you know uh, it's just been discovered that there is some Android malware called X Helper that reinstalls itself after even after a factory reset. That's kind of interesting, right? So, like, you know, you get malware on your Android-enabled device, and you think that you can delete it by doing a reset. Well, it's not going to happen that easily, uh, specifically with this type of malware, and it's called X-Helper. You can uh, look up the uh, POC and all of that stuff and see how, <laughs> see how legitimately scary it is. And, you know, of course, there's other scary technologies out there like these smart speakers everywhere. One of the cool things that uh, came to uh, my attention uh, in the past few days was a, a bracelet that actually jams these types of uh, smart speakers. And um, someone is putting together just that. It's a bracelet that will jam a smart speaker. And um, 
I don't want to get too far into that because it's still in development, but uh, pretty good stuff, right? Uh, you know, let's see, flipping through here. What's going on here? Rudders. What is Rudders? Rudders is a store chain. What do they do? What does Rudders do? Anyhow, they uh, disclosed a data breach. Looks like a more POS point of sale stuff. And I was having a good discussion actually last week as well with um, one of my colleagues and uh, she brought up a good point uh, whether or not, you know, because it's, it's no secret that I used to have my hand in a lot of satellite systems and reverse engineering the uh, said systems. Uh, but uh, she asked me point, pointedly rather, uh, you know, can hackers actually take over existing satellite systems and um, either, you know, turn them into weapons or uh, send them pummeling uh, into uh, the Earth's atmosphere? Well, the answer, uh, unfortunately, is yes. Uh, that's why we have a, 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 a you know, that's why we have specific uh, tailored uh, services uh, in charge of those specific systems. And so uh, there's, I was going to say most, but there are a lot of these uh, systems up there in the constellation, uh, the satellite constellation arc rather, and some out of the arc that are highly susceptible uh, to interference from ground, the ground, uh, just, just like GPS is actually. Uh, not really sure if you knew that or not, but... Uh, the original GPS constellation is extremely vulnerable to tampering. A lot of people didn't know that. Uh, and, you know, uh, think of the consequences of uh, someone actually, um, you know, monkeying around with the GPS satellites and... Uh, the think of the consequences of something like that on a Monday morning at 9 a.m. on some of the mo bigger cities. Uh, and those are the cities that are extremely affected by it. C cities are, rather, sorry. Uh, let's see what else we have. Uh, I don't know. Let's see. The FBI is warning about ongoing attacks against software supply chain companies. Whatever that means. Uh, the Imitet Trojan evolves to spread via a Wi-Fi connection. I thought everybody knew that. Did everybody know that? All right, uh, real <laughs> lastly, uh, what I was able to find, oh no, maybe my link's not working well, but uh, not really sure if you know this or not. Uh, I know a lot of our listeners are hams, and if you're not really sure what a ham is, uh, a ham is basically an amateur radio operator. And, uh, you know, for years, it costs thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to break into the hobby. And so one of the things that I found quite interesting was I actually ordered two of these. Um, 
And uh, they these are really cool. They are sold as walkie-talkies for $23 each. And it's a Valfang UV5R dual radio. Uh, and it seems that this little jewel has the has a push to talk range of over 30 miles. Now, if you are a ham operator, you can access the um, the repeater uh, system. I believe it's called Echolink. And then you can speak to people all around the world from your little handheld radio. It's pretty cool. Uh, and what I found interesting was the price point of $23 and the, the complete durability of these things. Uh, and for $23, uh, yeah, I bought a couple of them. Uh, and uh, if you are interested in these types of radios uh, where you could literally speak to the International Space Station, uh, you can actually purchase these things uh, from Amazon, uh, of all places as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know about you. Now, uh, I couldn't think of a more inexpensive way to speak to, you know, someone around the world or even the International Space Station. But that's what you can do with these. The Baofeng UV-5Rs. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, you can get in a host hunk of trouble if you are being a knucklehead with these things. So use these things at your own discretion and, of course, your own peril. Hopefully you uh, will obtain a, I believe it's a technician's license now. You don't have to learn Morse code like the old days. But uh, you will need a technician's license to transmit on these things. Well, you know, at least that's what you should have. Uh, again, again for the third time, it's the Baofeng B-A-O-F-E-N-G U-V-5R. Check it out. And uh, I think you really dig it. So let's see. Let me see what's going on here. Okay, uh, one of the things that I found interesting was, uh, you know, back in the early 80s, uh, there was this little known company called AT&T. <laughs> I know, it surprises me that they are actually extremely uh, relevant at this point in time in our, in, <laughs> in our lives and in history, and they've done everything they can to maneuver back to being the ultra-large Goliath company they have always been. Uh, but one thing that was interesting was the company was uh, forced to break up in the early 80s. I believe you, you can do some research on it, but an unbelievably fascinating uh, story of how one company was able to monopolize an entire country. And, you know, yeah, we, that... Uh, what do I... What, you know, there's, there's only a few companies in the United States that can still do this type of thing, you know, Comcast. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's many. And so uh, it, it's an interesting look into the mindset of what happened. Uh, it's also an interesting uh, dialogue on how it happened, what the people went through, and some of the technology uh, 
that was involved in um, the type of uh, that that was behind this type of uh, situation. Uh, so basically, uh, in January January first of nineteen eighty four, that's when things really took. Um, an interesting turn for AT&T. And so I wanted to share that with you uh, this morning on uh, just basically what happened uh, when AT&T broke up. And I thought that was interesting. I was listening to it uh, last night and uh, I wanted to bring that to you uh, and uh, let you uh, just take kind of take a trip back to uh, the mid 80s, 1985, 1986, uh, and, and kind of check out how uh, it all happened with AT&T being broken up and how the people actually pivoted in their career paths, uh, and what happened to people? What happened to those? Uh, what happened to everybody uh, when the company broke up? It was just more than a name change, and so I wanted to put the I wanted to share the human experience of what happened with the company as well, and so that's why I thought it was interesting to share with you guys. And so, uh, without any further ado, uh, check it out. Uh, it, you know, and uh, I'll be back at the end of the show. On memories of those days. The thread that ran through the whole fabric of competition was that, hey, this is going to be our last shot to do it as AT&T, and let's go out and show them that we can go out a winner. And, and, and uh, let's develop a type of posture that uh, says, hey, okay, you know, this is how we were in 82 and 83, but watch out for 84 because we're going to be competitive. For Al Kasten this summer, there will be no California unless he puts together a team to represent his new corporation, Bell Atlantic. 1984, AT&T is going to send a team out there, and I'm not going to be part of it. And that's going to affect me. At 48, Kasten is a grandfather. He's an installation methods manager for New Jersey Bell. He's worked there 29 years, all his working life. And his feelings about the breakup of the Bell system go way beyond track and field. Well, from a very personal point of view, uh, it's very emotional and very traumatic. And I guess I could liken it to uh, perhaps a divorce, uh, separation from friends, very close friends or a loved one that uh, you may never see again. Uh, it's more than perhaps just changing a job or going with another corporation. It's, it's a way of life that's literally changing. New Year's Day 1984 was a Sunday. People went back to work on Tuesday the 3rd. At the headquarters of the New Jersey Bell Company in Newark, the morning began with a birthday party. It was day one in the life of a new parent company, Bell Atlantic. There's a big piece of cake for you. There you go. Happy birthday. <laughs> for two years, everyone in the Bell system had been pointing toward this day, and a lot of preparation had gone into it. Throughout the country, signs had been pulled down, logos had been scraped away, enormous amounts of office equipment and files had been moved, new logos had gone up, all as part of the largest corporate reorganization in history. Now the moment had arrived, and in New Jersey they were eating cake at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. The week before, these people had worked for the largest corporation in the world. Today, Exxon was the largest corporation in the world. The president of New Jersey Bell tried to strike an upbeat note. When we all look backward, uh, 50, 30, 90 years from now, however we're all going to live, uh, we'll look back on this day, a great new day for New Jersey Bell as part of its new corporation, Bell Atlantic. 
But on this morning, people were subdued, and although it was billed as a birthday party, they never did sing happy birthday. I think it's unfortunate for the people who do not understand it. Uh, and that includes uh, even some of us who work for the company. We can't understand why the government wanted to break us up since we were doing such a good job. Why did the government break up a perfectly good telephone system? It's a question a lot of people have been asking. I'm Michael Aaron, and in this hour we'll try to answer that question. But the focus of our program is what the breakup meant to the people of the Bell system. We're not going to talk about your phone bill or getting a phone repaired. The consumer side of the story has been well told. What we will do is take you inside the telephone company, show you what an enormous task it was to break it up, and how wrenching it was for many of the people involved. Towards the end of the hour, we'll sit down with the man who reluctantly set it all in motion, the chairman of the board of AT&T, Charles Brown. Charlie Brown, as he's known. But first, the basics and a little history. 22 Bell operating companies cover the continental United States. Companies like New Jersey Bell, Illinois Bell, Pacific Telephone. They still exist, but instead of belonging to AT&T, they have been split off and consolidated into seven new completely independent companies. Regional holding companies, they're called. For example, Bell Atlantic is composed of New Jersey Bell, Bell of Pennsylvania, Diamond State Bell, and the Chesapeake and Potomac telephone companies. The other regional holding companies are 9X, Bell South, Ameritech, Southwestern Bell, U.S. West, and Pacific Telesis. It began, of course, with Alexander Graham Bell, who was trying to help the deaf, but ironically invented something that would help everyone but the deaf. An ex-railroad man named Theodore Vail really built AT&T. It was Vail's vision that one telephone company should serve the entire nation, and when independent companies sprang up, he'd often buy them. Over the years, AT&T linked up the nation and established a virtual monopoly. It invented its own products, developed them, manufactured them, and sold them. Sold them mostly to itself. It also asserted itself technologically. It launched the first communication satellite. It ran phone lines beneath the ocean that linked up the world. Its scientists invented the transistor and the laser. Meanwhile, it grew. By the late 1970s, it had more assets than Exxon, General Motors, and Mobil combined. One out of every 110 working people in America worked for AT&T. It employed 7,800 Smiths and 3,600 Browns, one of whom ran the empire. Organizationally, it looked like this. At the top, the AT&T General Staff, headquartered in Lower Manhattan and Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Then, the 22 Bell Operating Companies, the Long Lines Department, which tied together the 22 local networks into one national network, operating out of Bedminster, New Jersey, Western Electric, the manufacturing and purchasing arm of the system that supplied it with telephones and 50,000 other items, operating out of New York, and Bell Laboratories, the research and development arm of the system, headquartered in Murray Hill, New Jersey. It was big, but we have a distrust of bigness in this country, and almost since the beginning, the federal government has worried about the size of AT&T. In 1913, the government forced Theodore Vail to give up the telegraph side of the business and almost nationalized the company altogether. In 1949, the Justice Department filed an antitrust suit against AT&T that was resolved seven years later when AT&T agreed to stick to telephone communications and stay out of related fields, such as data processing. Then in the late 1960s, the Federal Communications Commission started opening up the telephone industry to competition. Among other things, it ruled that would-be long-distance firms, such as MCI, must be allowed to wire themselves into the Bell Network. 
The officers of AT&T tried to thwart the competition, for example, by making you dial 14 digits to get a line. And the new firms cried, unfair. So in 1974, the Justice Department filed another suit against AT&T, this time for failing to give other companies a fair shot at the long-distance market. The lead attorney on the case at the time was a young lawyer in the antitrust division named Philip Verveer. By the time I became involved uh, with the matter, it was uh, September of 1973, and there were very serious complaints lodged by both uh, long-distance companies that were trying to compete with AT&T's long lines uh, department who could not obtain adequate interconnections with the local bell operating companies to compete, and also from terminal equipment manufacturers, the people who manufacture telephone handsets and things of that nature, who felt that they were being deprived of an opportunity to sell or lease their products and interconnect them uh, to the lines of the bell operating companies. Now those factual complaints were the things that I think in the first instance motivated the Justice Department. But simultaneously with the concerns about the factual uh, anti-competitive acts, was a set of theoretical uh, concerns that led the department, people in the department, to believe that a company structured the way AT&T was presently structured with three monopolies, long distance, local exchange, and equipment, could not operate as dynamically, as efficiently, as much in the public interest as if, as if it were restructured. In other words, the trust busters wanted to break up the biggest monopoly in the world. Some people speculate that Watergate played a role in this, that the Nixon White House, with its pro-business orientation, probably would have blocked the lawsuit if everyone there hadn't been so distracted by Watergate. I think there's little reason to doubt that the consequences of Watergate made it easier for the antitrust division to get approval to file the suit. But this isn't, no question, this was a very major step directed in an infrastructure industry. And it is quite possible that except for the fallout of Watergate, the White House might well have decided that uh, this is something that shouldn't have gone forward. But go forward, it did. After seven years of pretrial maneuvering, a trial finally began. This, in essence, was the government's case against AT&T. This was AT&T's reply. The trial was held here at the U.S. Courthouse in the District of Columbia, Judge Harold Green presiding. Look at the number of antitrust attorneys who worked on the case for the Justice Department. AT&T had nearly twice as many attorneys. The trial had been going 10 months and had produced 92 witnesses when it was suddenly interrupted by a surprise announcement. The two parties had agreed to settle. This is a historic decision without any question. I believe we've chosen the right course, although uh, clearly it was not the solution that we sought. Charles Lee Brown, the chairman of AT&T, who began his career climbing telephone poles, whose mother and father both worked for the phone company, was announcing that he had agreed to break it apart. His emotions almost got the best of him. We have served the public very well since the Bell system began, and we're going to continue to do that service job. That's our business. I speak for all of us in the Bell system when I tell you that we look forward to getting out of court and back to business. The agreement called for AT&T to keep its manufacturing arm, its research arm, and its long-distance business, but to divest itself of the 22 operating companies. 
In return, AT&T would be deregulated and become free to compete in virtually any business it wanted to, including computers. Why did Charlie Brown give in? That was the question on everyone's mind. Alfred Kahn, an economist at Cornell, was President Carter's chief inflation fighter. He's the man who deregulated the airlines, and he's been a consultant to AT&T off and on since 1968. First of all, I think he saw the handwriting on the wall, that uh, it looked as though Judge Green was going to find them in violation of the antitrust laws. Now, that's, of course, speculation, and Judge Green himself has said, you mustn't be misled by the violence of some of my language at the point when I uh, rejected the application of AT&T for a summary dismissal of the case. And he wrote some language that certainly looked as though he was prepared to find them in violation of the antitrust laws. And he may not have after having heard AT&T's defense. The fact is that Charlie Brown saw that it was going to drag on a long time. Success was by no means assured. I think that if you had to bet, you'd bet that they would be found in violation. And he thought, while competition is coming in and we are being subjected to this erosion of our market position, Let's see if we can get a settlement that'll end this thing. A second reason was that AT&T wanted badly to get into the computer business. In the 40s, when Bell scientists invented the transistor that would form the basis of computer technology, telephones and computers were two different fields. But the lines between them have blurred. Today, telephones can process data, and computers can transmit information over long distances. And it began to gall AT&T that it had to stay out of the field it had contributed so much to. No one contemplated 25 years ago that a revolutionary, a revolution in modern technology has largely erased the difference between computers and communications. As a consequence, the Bell system has been effectively prohibited from using the fruits of its own technology. Still, the news of the settlement surprised nearly everyone. Don Van Lenten was a public relations officer at New Jersey Bell for 29 years. Now he's a vice president of Bell Atlantic in Arlington, Virginia. Now, I don't want in any way for you to construe this, Mike, as uh, the kind of exercise we all go through, people of our age. Where were you when FDR died? Or where were you on the day uh, JFK was killed? I'm not trying to elevate it to that level of national catastrophe. But for those of us who had been around 25, 30, 40 years, the whole idea of breaking up the Bell system was anathema. So for a couple of days uh, uh, after January 8, 1982, a lot of people were walking around in a state of uh, shock, if not shock trauma. Neutral from 80 to 85 and to a sell over $85. One group greatly interested in all this was the stockholders of AT&T. 3.2 million of them, making AT&T stock far and away the most widely held security in the world. Last fall, Merrill Lynch held a seminar for these people in 58 cities via closed-circuit television. As AT&T goes through the most dramatic corporate breakup in history, Merrill Lynch can show you where the opportunities are. For them, the breakup meant that one of their most secure investments was suddenly a big question mark. Many of them were upset and didn't know what to do. Because AT&T stock was as good as gold. It wasn't dependent on our currency. It was gold. Now it's gone. I think that it's totally bewildering, and uh, I'm here tonight to find out a little bit of what to do. I don't think it's very good, you know. 
because it's a, it's a confusion now with all those different companies. Obviously another interested group is the customers of the Bell system. Little customers like you and me, but also the biggest customer, the Defense Department. It's worried not only about its phone bill, but about national security as well. The department spends $1.3 billion on phone service each year, and some of that pays for special circuits that connect elements of the nation's nuclear defense system, which is why Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger argued against the breakup before Judge Green. Deputy Undersecretary for Communications, Donald Latham. Now we will have to deal with the, uh, the long-distance entity, which will still largely be AT&T. However, now we will have to deal with a local phone company or maybe phone companies at the end of the circuit at point A and maybe phone companies at the end of circuit, uh, the point to B. So we'll have to deal with more people and more companies in order to make sure that we get the kind of circuits in that we want and that they can have the, uh, the service that we need and so on. So one of the circuits, for example, that we want to make sure is absolutely there all the time is the SAC primary alerting network. That's the, that's the name of the net. And it's a network in which you pick up a phone at the uh, uh, SAC headquarters and it immediately rings, uh, so to speak, uh, literally, in, in a number of other places in, in the United States. And uh, we pay for that kind of service and we must have it. And yes, it, it uses the commercial telephone system. We asked how divestiture might affect the famous hotline, only to learn that the hotline is not a telephone at all. Today, it consists of a low-speed teletype writer in this building and a low-speed teletype writer in a building in Moscow uh, connected together through two diverse routes between here and the Soviet Union. If the president wants to make a phone call to the Soviet Union, he can certainly do that, but that's not what the hotline is. Still another interested group is the suppliers of the Bell system, 45,000 of them, companies like General Machine Products in Trevos, Pennsylvania. Since 1936, General Machine has supplied hundreds of outdoor products to Western Electric, the purchasing arm of the Bell system. Nelson Funt is president of the company. First off, I, I thought from the beginning for a couple of years now that the, the breakup of uh, the best telephone system in the world is, is kind of ludicrous. I just thought that uh, it, was, uh, it didn't make sense to me to, to, to do this. Uh, having traveled abroad and, and been in countries with, uh, with poor telephone systems, we had the, the world's best. And uh, we, we were going to now you know, break it up, and that seemed to me uh, to be the wrong direction to go. A machine called the Cable Lasher is one of the mainstays of Funt's business. It consists of 600 parts and sells for $1,100. Funt's father helped develop the machine, and Norman Rockwell once painted one. Funt does not relish having to sell it now to seven different companies. Of course, it used to be centralized uh, through the Western Electric Company. A contract would be uh, issued uh, after, after bidding through Western Electric on a, on a specific product. Uh, the, the low bidder would get, get the award, and uh, you were dealing with, with Western Electric, who then in turn distributed it to all the operating companies. And uh, now you're going to have uh, seven buying groups seven regions that are going to be purchasing individually. And we're going to have to travel a great deal more to each of the seven regions, to the uh, corporate headquarters of the seven regions. But if divestiture posed problems for stockholders, customers, and suppliers, the people it most affected were the employees of the Bell system. 994,000 employees. Only the federal government has more. Once, their jobs were about as secure as a job can be. But now, the toughest part of the last year or last year and a half has, to be, has been the uncertainty that we have faced.
There was a certain amount of uncertainty in terms of what I do. The most frustrating part, at least for me personally, has been the fact that the ground rules have not been certain. There's a lot more uncertainty. People's first concern was, will I have a job? And if so, where? Uh, my chief concern was to continue to make a living, which uh, I'm kind of fond of eating. My first uh, impression was, where would I go from here? Would the office still be here? I didn't know if we were going to go through that. I didn't know if we were going to go back to the old company. I really didn't know what was going to happen. A lot of the old timers were, uh, were upset. They didn't know whether they were coming or going. The anxiety uh, was building up over quite a long period of time, I think, among employees. And uh, most of us had a lot of time to think about what we were going to do if we had an option. Two-thirds of the workforce is unionized, and many of those people sought help from their unions. Now, I, for one, uh, in one year, did 65 membership meetings in my district of Bell Locals. In that one year, I saw 20,000 members. More members came out to these meetings than any time in our history. In order to minimize the confusion that this whole breakup has caused, when not worrying about themselves, they worried about the company, the phone system, and their ability to perform. The other thing is that AT&T, even as an outsider, I, I have to say, down to the last lineman or operator in the system, had an incredible esprit de corps. You know, they really thought of themselves as a family. People would devote their lives and careers to AT&T. I mean, I know that that's true. Um, and that was connected with a service mentality. Whether our critics uh, liked it or not, there was something that brought Bell System people together. And what brought them together was the sense of doing a public service and doing it very well. And make sure they understand how to do business with you and how you can help them through this period. Uh, there's no question that customers are confused out there. So it was like breaking a family apart. 50,000 operators would be shifted from local Bell companies to the new AT&T. So would 50,000 installers and repairmen. Executives would be relocated. Friends and colleagues would be separated. In medical departments throughout the Bell system, company doctors worried about the stress all this would cause. It's almost like losing a member of your family. Uh, so many of the people here uh, have worked for the Bell system for 25 and 30 years. They grew up with the Bell system. They were used to the Bell system, and now suddenly uh, they're told that the Bell system is dead. They say that breaking up is hard to do. Now I know, I know that it's true. Meanwhile, at AT&T headquarters, somebody had to be in charge of divestiture. Somebody had to plan and execute the whole thing. That person was William Sharwell, a senior vice president and a 30-year veteran of the Bell system. Actually, the agreement of January the 8th uh, really described the end process, the end point of a process. Uh, it said what we had to do to conform to the agreement. It didn't say how to get there. So we spent virtually the whole year 1982 in planning this. 1982 was a year of planning, 1983 was a year of implementation, 1984 was a year of living with it. But breaking it up wasn't easy. For starters, AT&T owned 24,000 buildings. They had to be divided up. Ownership of cable had to be clarified and switching equipment. 
Hundreds of buildings were transferred. Millions of circuits were transferred. Millions of telephones, the ownership was transferred. But where it gets sticky is that inside of one cable sheath, you will have some pairs that are AT&T and some pairs that are New Jersey Bell. So then what do you do with the whole thing? Buildings housing both local and long distance equipment sometimes had to be split in half. And there it was a matter of uh, negotiation about uh, uh, where you were going to draw the line. And we have a lot of joint use buildings. Uh, and you'll see these if you go into them. Uh, the uh, local company area is often partitioned off. Sometimes it's marked by tape on a floor. The trick was in doing all this without inconveniencing the customer. I'll give you an analogy of my own. Okay, you're in a 747, right? And you're the chief engineer. You're up there 33,000 feet closer to God than you want to be. And you get an order from the ground, change the engines. But do not disturb the passengers. To keep from disturbing the passengers, most Bell employees stuck to their jobs. Only about 1% worked directly on divestiture. Of course, in the Bell system, 1% was 10,000 people. They didn't necessarily believe in what they were doing, but they did it. Sometimes they argued. It's amazing how one Bell system for 100 years, uh, uh, the parent company signs a consent agreement with uh, the Department of Justice that gave the broad outlines of a split in the family. And uh, almost overnight, there was the beginnings of some adversary feeling, not in the nasty sense, but in terms of uh, what we're going to have to work with and what you're going to have to work with and what legitimately should go with you and what legitimately should stay with us. One divisive issue was the Yellow Pages, a $3 billion a year business. Both sides wanted it and neither would give in, so they took the matter to Judge Green, who decided in favor of the operating companies. The judge also awarded the Bell name and logo to the operating companies, except that AT&T could keep the name Bell Laboratories. Another flap concerned this 230-acre tract in Chester, New Jersey, where outdoor telephone equipment is tested. Bell Labs owned it, but the operating companies felt they deserved a stake in it. We had a lot of position papers written on this, and uh, we had a lot of conferences on this, and uh, uh, eventually uh, the top officers of the business uh, went to look at the facility, and. Uh, uh, we made a Solomon-like decision that uh, it would be uh, divided physically. Customer billing raised another sticky question. Would AT&T send its own phone bill to 90 million long-distance customers every month? Or would it pay the operating companies to continue to collect the money? The decision, at least temporarily, was to contract the work out to the operating companies. Charles Buckley, a 40-year veteran of the system, handled those negotiations for AT&T. Being in one Bell system, everybody had co-equal responsibilities and objectives, and we were rather marching together. In the past two years since uh, divestiture was announced, uh, the objectives of the people that I've been working with are not necessarily in concert with mine. They have different responsibilities. And uh, at first, this was a very sensitive thing, going out to meet with them. Uh, 
These are all people of, of goodwill, but they do have their own objectives and we have ours. What's remarkable is that we weren't at one another's throats. Uh, the degree of civility that prevailed uh, during that uh, two-year period uh, was uh, absolutely incredible. Were there contentions? Of course there were contentions. Has it happened without pain? Uh, considerable amount of pain. Considerable amount of pain. In August of 1983, AT&T submitted to Judge Green for his approval a final plan of reorganization. Built into it was a guiding principle, an employee shall follow his work. And that's in Newark. You show nothing under those initials in Newark, ma'am. Director Assistance. Uh, you say Hessel, right? Okay, Trenton is in the 609 area code. Dial 411 and you get local directory assistance. 411 operators have stayed with the local Bell operating companies. But dial zero, followed by a nine-digit number, and you get a long-distance operator. Steve, Alice, call and you collect your excerpt. Since AT&T kept the long-distance business, 50,000 dial zero operators have followed their work to AT&T Communications, the new entity created by AT&T that will compete against Sprint, MCI, and others. Tony is making the call and billing it to your phone. Excuse the call. What is your last name, sir? Thank you. Kazani. Well, he's billing it to your phone. Do you know him? These operators and these operators work in the same building. In many Bell offices around the country, AT&T now leases the space that long-distance operators have always used, meaning that few operators had to be physically uprooted. But all these operators used to be colleagues. Now, when the 411s look across the hall at the dial zeros, there's a psychological barrier. They work for entirely separate organizations. Margaret Mogul and her mother were split up in this fashion. Uh, we talked about how, what kind of different benefits we were both going to receive, if we were going to compete against each other eventually. Um, she, we didn't really know what was going to happen. Now, she says, the two groups of operators are drifting apart and tend to stick to themselves. Yes, even down in the lunchroom. Basically, they stayed on one side, we stayed on another, but we talked to each other. Hello? Hi? Since AT&T now owns the phones we used to lease from our local company, 50,000 people who repair and install phones followed their work to AT&T Information Systems. ATTIS, as it's called, is a competitive company trying to sell telephone equipment. It's a tough job making a decision. You need all the facts. We need numbers. AT&T Information Systems can help with a complete range of products. We can match them, but we will be in the, in the marketplace offering these various options. Aggressive marketing is new to most people at AT&T. When they were a monopoly, they didn't have to compete. They were like a public utility. Now, in regular meetings like this one, they're trying to reorient themselves. Obviously, as we moved from a utility to a highly competitive organization, we had to change the way we focused our business. Uh, we, we have built our business traditionally on good customer service. That hasn't changed. I mean, the way we deliver that service in a high technology world is totally different than it used to be. And we need different skills and different uh, sets of requirements that the people have to bring to the table. We now sell our products rather than just lease them. Um, you know, those kind of things are advantages to us that we didn't have before. Much more flexible as 
to the type of arrangements we make as far as service and so on and so forth, so we can be more competitive. For installers and repairmen, moving to ATTIS has meant, among other things, wearing a tie on the job. Traditionally, uniform was a two-pocket plaid shirt, but now with the, with the image they want to put outside, it's gone completely uh, to Brooks Brothers. Uh, we have folks on accounts like Squibb and Campbell Soup who are there all the time. And it's their account, they're responsible for it. Uh, the change in dress really is just a change in mindset, that they're more than just the installer. They're part of an account team that handles the account from soup to nuts. Uh, no pun intended. And we said we would honor every contract we have existing. Uh, we've been getting ready for this for four or five years. We, you know, this is not uh, the the details, and in particular, the divestiture were just recently finalized. But we've known that something along this line was going to happen, so we've been getting ready for it. Some people were not ready for it. The settlement was kind of shocking to me. I was disappointed in Charlie Brown. I thought that he should have fought it. But uh, in retrospect, I think he made the right decision. Carl Voli was a New Jersey Bell engineer for 25 years, but when divestiture came, he retired. For whatever reason, uh, I went to work for Monopoly 25 years ago. And in the last five years or so, that Monopoly changed from uh, into a very competitive industry. And uh, I didn't think that uh, after 25 years, um, I was going to be able to adjust to that very readily. Now he's building houses with one of his sons. I've tried a number of different things, and I settled on carpentry because I'm working for my son, with my son most of the time, and it's kind of a role reversal that we're both enjoying very much. He's getting even with me for when I, he was a teenager, really. <laughs> How are you doing? Hans Levenbach is another early retiree. A statistical analyst at AT&T in Basking Ridge, he's starting his own consulting business. Well, it's really a, a long-term dream I've had, and uh, I might have done it even uh, if the divestiture never came. I've always wanted to run an operation like I have here on my own without reporting to any bosses, although I've had a great bosses. Uh, and this is a really unique opportunity to take advantage of it. Hans and Carl took advantage of MIP, the Management Income Protection Plan. Under MIP, a management level employee could leave the Bell system and get one year's salary paid out over two years, plus pension benefits. MIP was a relatively humane way to reduce the size of the workforce, and during the divestiture period, about 24,000 people MIPed out of the system, as they say. Another 330,000 changed companies. Barbara Rager, for example, is a research chemist. After a natural disaster, she was part of a team at Bell Labs that flew to the scene and assessed the damage to telephone equipment. Here, she's examining a microchip for signs of chemical contamination. In dealing with contamination, it's sort of like being a Sherlock Holmes for the Bell system. And it's fun work. Barbara's work was mainly for the operating companies, so divestiture meant her job would be shifting to a brand new entity created by the seven regional companies to serve as their version of Bell Labs. To follow her work, she'd have to be willing to transfer to that company. Her first concern was simple and straightforward. Where would she be? In the beginning, we really had no idea if a move would be involved. Uh, I live in southern Jersey, and we didn't know if there would be a southern location, and if there was one, would I be there, or would I be having to uh, move to another location? And that's concern when you're married and you have children. 
She also had to consider the career implications of the move. What would she lose by leaving Bell Labs, often called the world's leading industrial research facility, for an unknown company that until this year didn't even have a name? Could we actually do as competent a job as we now do? Would we have the, the freedom to then go out and publish information to the world and uh, participate in outside organizations uh, as we have with Bell Laboratories? And since that time, we've learned that we would be able to do all of these things, that we will be um, participating as a research organization um, as good as Bell Laboratories. Barbara made her decision, and she won't have to move. The new company has four new buildings under construction, one of them near Barbara's home. After that, the only hard part was the paperwork. Everything has to change. Everything is changing names. And I've probably signed my name a thousand times now on, on everything that, that is happening. Bell Labs, where Barbara used to work, is really a story unto itself. It began in Greenwich Village in 1921 and has been awarded on average more than one patent per day ever since. Its scientists have also won nine Nobel Prizes. The transistor and the laser were invented here. The computer term bit originated here. Operating out of enormous buildings in three New Jersey towns, Bell Labs is like a large university with no students, only faculty. 25,000 of them before divestiture, 18,000 today. 2,000 have PhDs, the largest concentration of PhDs anywhere. Divestiture raised serious questions about Bell Labs, mainly having to do with whether the science there would somehow be undermined by AT&T's being suddenly thrown into the competitive arena. By definition, nobody welcomes change. But once a change occurs, we all realize that it is going to be for the good. Kumar Patel, a 20-year veteran of Bell Labs, is the inventor of the carbon dioxide laser used in manufacturing and cancer treatment. He also supervises 280 physicists engaged in pure research. If we talk about research, that idea about getting there first has always been there. In research, competition is the, is the fundamental principle by which we live. Competition is there all the time because in research, being second has zero value. You have to be there first. But will too much pressure be put on the scientists now? Nobody who is responsible for near-term profitability or producing a product tomorrow is going to tell us or is interested in telling us what to, what to do because AT&T over the years has clearly recognized that one has to make a separation between the people who provide the funding and people who make the decisions about where the next advance will occur from. I'm convinced that we have nothing to worry about. A Bell Labs engineer we spoke to expressed similar optimism. If you ask me from a consumer's point of view, uh, I would say that I was probably better served, I can say definitely I was better served by the vertically integrated companies uh, based on my understanding of the network and understanding of how those network of companies work well together. We, I was better served as a consumer. If you ask me as a professional engineer and a developer of equipment, uh, is that I've been greatly helped by divestiture from the point of view is that I'm now not restricted in terms of what products I can go out and develop. 
uh, to compete in the marketplace. And, and that creates a lot of opportunities for engineers like myself. Whatever comes out of Bell Labs will be part of a new wave of technological wonders that the vestiture is supposed to bring about. At least, that's the argument. Technology is not only going to drive down costs, it's going to increase the value and variety of services. And we've already seen it. You're getting a dazzling, growing variety of kinds of things that you can attach to your telephone set. Telephone instruments that think. Telephone instruments that process data. Well, I think I'm as confident today as I was 10 years ago that the public will benefit from this very significant reorganization of the company. But in the meantime, divestiture has left casualties. Western Electric's phone repair plant in Union, New Jersey. It is February 3rd, one month into the new era. 48 workers have just been given layoff notices, and 71 others have been downgraded. Across the street from the plant at Farcher's restaurant, union members grab a quick lunch and attend a hastily arranged meeting. Reagan could have stepped into this and stopped it. He could have done it. He's got the power to do it. 20 years ago. People up there sitting in their chairs writing us off like peons. They don't know how many lives they're screwing up. I don't really think they know, as they're sipping their cocktails, how many lives they're screwing up. They don't really care. You know, you're talking about people who have been putting 10 years of service, at least, into this company. I can't understand the where the, company in the, world. the Senate or the Congress doesn't step in and try to stop <clears throat> some of this. Hell, Weinberger told him it was going to hurt the defense of the United States. Why didn't they step in then? Like I said before, it's a system that worked for 100 years. Why, really? Why break up something that's good? They always uh, came out with the impression that no one will lose their job because of the vestiture. Here you see 48 of my friends here getting laid off. I'll probably be in the next layoff. Ten members of the Davis family worked at the plant, and two of them received layoff notices. Another said he'd be next. How do you know that you're, you're next in line for a layoff? Because I saw the seniority list. Is that how they're doing it, by seniority? Yes. Ten years doesn't count as much no. seniority over there? No. <laughs> <laughs> Don't mean you gotta have Ten years don't mean anything. No. I got two daughters in college. Did you, uh, what, did you get any bad news? Yeah, they told me I was getting laid off this morning. They don't even try to place these people in the system. It's a big system, a million employees, second to the government. My son was laid off uh, a year ago. No help at all. The company isn't helping us. The government, it seems like when you're number one, you're bad. This big company never asked this government for a penny. They did a lot for this country. All of a sudden, break them up. They're bad. They're number one. The name Judge Green came up. Biggest trader in American history. Next to Benedict Arnold. Really? He us. broke up the best system in the world. You know, I think Mike Quill hit it real good when he said the judge in his black robes could drop dead. That Judge Green ought to drop dead. He screwed the American people something fierce. Do you think one man is capable of making all the decisions that Judge Green made? Is he that smart? The bottom line of the whole thing is they've been better off leaving well enough alone. I feel very bad, too, because I've been there 15 years, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, I get a drop, you know, I get downgraded. How much money do you lose, if I might ask? Uh... Maybe about 20 or $30 a week, I think. And all of a sudden, they just come up to you, and you're downgraded. Why do you think it's related to divestiture? Well, everything was going along fine. Before that, they stepped in with that. This isn't paper that they passed out. 
AT&T Consumer Products Challenge, it says divestiture brings new opportunities for AT&T Consumer Product Service Centers, which means us. Divestures has brought nothing but seems like heartaches, nothing more. New challenges, what is that, a new challenge? This was passed out uh, only yesterday. That was passed out yesterday? Yesterday. In the Western Electric Company, there was 30 service centers, just like the one across the street, that controlled the 50 states. Some control one or two states as a repair center. Since the divestiture, they've closed five service centers on the spur of the moment. Four weeks later, management announced that this service center would close by the end of the year. The plant manager said, don't blame divestiture, blame technological progress and competition. Throughout our research for this report, we kept hearing one name over and over, Charlie Brown. It had been his decision to settle the antitrust suit. He was the one who'd given assurances to employees and to the public. We asked to see Mr. Brown, and he was amenable. We met early one morning up there on the 26th floor. Let me take you back two years and ask you how you came to the decision to settle the antitrust suit. Well, you have to uh, realize that the job of anybody in a, in a position like this is to make sure the company adapts itself to what the public expects of it. And the big job is to, to look around to see what it is the public expects and recognize it and do it. Uh, no company can live outside that uh, public expectation. It was clear to me that the political decision to do something uh, to change the industry structure was inevitable. Brown said the company was being challenged in three forums, the Congress, the FCC, and the courts through the antitrust suit. He said the company was also anxious to shake free from the 1956 agreement with the government that was keeping it out of the data processing business. Our problem was that we were restricted to uh, what we could do with our own technology. Everybody else could come into our business, but we couldn't go in anybody else's business. And so uh, that, that kind of a restriction was very, very difficult on us. Uh, was there a moment of decision where you're shaving one morning and you looked in the mirror and said, yeah, we've got to settle this loss? No, I, business decisions generally aren't made that way, at least not by me. Uh, we, we considered a number of options over a long period of time and, and uh, came to a conclusion which uh, made sense from the analysis of those options. People speak of it as your decision, however. Was it your decision? Well, that's where the buck stops right here. Uh, the uh, board of directors, of course, uh, uh, were in the matter uh, from uh, way back. They, they uh, were constantly with me and with the other officers in the business in deciding what we ought to do based on the alternatives we saw. But eventually it, it stops here. One officer of a regional holding company speaking on your behalf said, uh, I'm sure Charlie Brown didn't join the Bell system in order someday to preside over its dissolution. It must have been a very tough decision for him and the officers. How tough a decision was it? Well, it was it? very, very difficult, very emotionally difficult, uh, very physically difficult. I come from a family where my father and my mother and my uh, sister all worked for the business. Uh, I have a great respect for its history and for its accomplishments, and uh, it was a very difficult uh, decision for me to make. You started out in the system laying cable underground, correct? Yes, that's right, climbing poles, and, and so I've been with it all my working life. Deep down, you must be proud of what you've done. I imagine you are anyway. Well, I don't think pride's got much to do with it. Uh, I, I did what I had to do. I did what I felt was correct. 
and uh, I don't uh, lose any sleep once I've made a decision like that. Uh, let me ask you for a brief answer to an enormous question. Is this whole thing going to be good for the country? Oh, I've had the conviction and, and taken the position in uh, more than one forum that uh, uh, the country in the long run will be sorry, and I think that that uh, it it's very clear that people feel in the short run that it's the wrong thing to have uh, done. It was a, a working system which was the envy of the world. Uh, it uh, it uh, has yet to be decided that a fragmented telephone system uh, has ever worked anywhere, as well as one which is uh, controlled uh, or, uh, or uh, uh, the parameters of which are set from uh, one place, be it a government uh, bureau or whether it be a private uh, situation such as exists here. Um, I find it difficult to, believe that th difficult to believe that things will work as well uh, in, the, in the future as they have worked in the past from the standpoint of the, of the uh, coordinated uh, telephone system. Uh, the advantages, of course, are, are those attributed uh, in most circumstances to competition, uh, where different ideas and different uh, uh, people will uh, come in and offer the customer a variety of, of choices. I think it remains to be seen uh, which of these uh, advantages uh, would predominate. I think it's academic now, and I don't spend very much time worrying about it. But uh, I, uh, I think the Bell system was doing a very good job. Uh, I, th I think it was a mistake uh, to uh, uh, to have um, to, for the for the country to have uh, decided that um, uh, based on a, sh a shibboleth that competition is always good uh, to break up something as uh, as competent as the Bell system. The promise being held out to us is that uh, competition spurs innovation, and this great technological horn of plenty is going to spill out all these goodies over the next 20 or 30 years. Do you buy that? No. Uh, <laughs> you think your own Bell Labs would have uh, poured the same goodies out uh, anyway? Well, most of the innovations in telephony in, in the last 50 years have come out of the Bell Laboratories. Uh, we intend to feed the labs. We intend to keep their uh, uh, their uh, ingenuity and their initiative uh, high. Uh, I'm not saying that others can't produce uh, innovative ideas, but the idea that there's been some sort of a plug in that horn of plenty because of a monopoly is just foolish. Brown said the toughest part of divestiture was the technical problem of pulling apart the system. But then we talked about the human dislocations. I think the worst part of it on, on people uh, had to do with the indecision about where their job was going to be. They knew that the jobs were going to be split open. They knew the AT&T, for example, its general headquarters, uh, which supplied services for all the Bell companies, was going to be broken up. And some people would have to go one place and others another place. We did not know early on who was going where or how many people would be going in different directions. So we laid major ground rules, uh, broad ground rules, such as the people go with the work. Uh, that's all right uh, uh, on a macro basis, but for an individual, uh, he wants to know where I'm going and, and what am I going to be doing. And I think that was the toughest, and, and it remains uh, uh, one of the more difficult things in this divestiture. Do you think there are some people who fell through the cracks? Well, I, I, in, in, a, in a, something as massive as this, uh, uh, I, I suppose one could say uh, yes to that question, although we certainly 
tried to do it uh, by individuals and had people working on it by individuals as opposed to, to by mass. Did you ever promise to the employees of the Bell system uh, that nobody would be hurt by divestiture, that nobody would lose their jobs? I, I said uh, we don't expect anybody to lose their job because of divestiture. Now, uh, I, I suppose I could be argued with uh, from the standpoint that when you create new organizations and consolidate uh, then, and, and, uh, and remove staff jobs, you can trace that all the way back to divestiture. Uh, but, but that was not the intent of what I said. In other words, the divestiture itself did not cause loss of jobs. Uh, and if there have been loss of jobs in, say, Western Electric, for example, it's because of competition and those jobs might well have been lost anyway? Oh, you know, the, the Western Electric thing is an entirely different matter. Uh, here we have uh, factories which were built in the early part of the century for, uh, for the purpose of, of building electromechanical devices. And you have vast acreages of floors with uh, ironwork and uh, millions of relays. Uh, currently, the way uh, the technology has moved in a very, very short time is that uh, the business uh, done by relays and acres of floors is now done by tiny chips the size of your fingernail, or done by, instead of big uh, copper cable, is done by uh, tiny uh, glass fibers. Uh, the technology is entirely different. It works in, in rooms built like hospital rooms, much cleaner than hospital rooms, as a matter of fact. And, and you, you cannot attribute uh, uh, factory closings to divestiture in that sense. It's entirely different technology and was going on uh, progressively over, over time. At the end of a 25-minute conversation, we asked if there was anything Brown wanted the public to know about divestiture that we hadn't touched upon. Well, I, I, so much has been said about divestiture that I don't know is it's uh, possible or even desirable to try to uh, to summarize a situation which is as fluid as as this one is, uh, I, w I would ask the public for some patience. Uh, I, I realize there's intense confusion uh, here. Uh, I would suggest that it wasn't our idea to begin with. And, uh, and uh, what we're trying to do is make the best of it. Uh, I, I'm very proud of the way people have done this divestiture inside the Bell system, considering that both physical and emotional uh, difficulties of it. There never has been anything uh, in the business world to approximate this reorganization. I think we've done it with some skill and some class. And I, I thoroughly believe that, uh, that it will come out to the point where, where uh, customers and uh, employees uh, uh, will, will settle down to a, a normal uh, business life. It's getting there, or so it seems. Most of us have survived divestiture without too much inconvenience. You can still call California from the East Coast. Inside the old Bell system, well, this winter, AT&T moved its corporate headquarters from lower Manhattan, where it had been since 1916 and where its neighbors were banks and brokerage houses, to Midtown Manhattan, where its neighbors are the big firms it will be competing against in the new information age. The move, however, was in the works long before anybody knew about divestiture. In the spring, AT&T unveiled its new computers, the product it's been wanting to develop and sell for so many years. The critics were impressed, if not necessarily wowed. The regional phone companies, meanwhile, seem to be doing fine. At least they're making profits, but then they should. They are still monopolies. 
seven little monopolies in place of the big one we used to know, and truncated versions of that big one. Was it a good thing that all this happened? It'll probably be 10 or 20 years before we can answer that question. In the meantime, I hope we've convinced you that, good, bad, or otherwise, it didn't come easy. Don't take my about that wasn't that something yeah um ooh, ooh, you got to catch your breath after that because there was so much to digest from the um but that's how it all went down uh in in the 80s with at&t and you know uh there i would not be surprised to see other companies in the future uh this happening rather uh to more companies in the future it happened to other companies as well i won't mention them but uh, you could do some um, diligence and kind of look backwards and see. But uh, for me, it was AT&T uh, that made the biggest difference because, you know, again, I was a phone freak when I was a kid and uh, I, it just, it, it was all a new day. It really was. And uh, everything changed, uh, sp- specifically in the old switching offices. Uh, we had a switching office uh, here uh, near where I lived. I believe the switching office was on Atlantic Boulevard. Uh, and I think it's still there, Atlantic and what is that? Atlantic Boulevard and Arlington Road. I think it was behind a, a chicken place. But uh, that was my old switch, and uh, so there were many, and that was the '80s, and this is the show. <laughs> and so I'm gonna get out of here. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody uh, for writing in with their uh, best wishes for me uh, while I recovered with my busted leg. I am. <laughs> I've reduced the uh, Advil consumption considerably, and I am feeling much better. So thank you for all of your well wishes as well. Uh, again, we are uh, we are still deciding on what to do with the whole um, the hope thing. We've we it's it's on again, it's off again. Uh, we we keep having discussions on on um, just whether or not we wish to travel to. Uh, new york for the whole hope event thing so we're keeping in our we're definitely keeping our eye out on that and we'll probably bring bring our balfangs if we do attend yeah 
right? So with that said, you know, hey, check out the website at hackers.xxx. You can check us out on most podcasting uh, systems and all of that stuff. And uh, what else? Uh, feel free to uh, try to reach out to us if you uh, want to. Uh, you can uh, do the same at hackers.xxx. Just, uh, you know, smash the contact uh, link and you're good to go. Uh, and, you know, also, um, you know, be sure to, uh, what, what else was it going to say? Yeah, that's right. Be sure to try to use your skills for something good, right? Because that's what it's all about. Uh, and try to, if you can, help somebody this week. See what you can do to help somebody. Reach out. If you see someone trying to cross the road and they're struggling, reach out to them and help them. If you see somebody struggling at work and you know the answer, and you're just not feeling good that day for whatever reason, just, you know, clear your throat and try to help them. And then, you know, it's the small things in life that matter the most. You know, as I look at these red skies in the evening, mostly at night here, you know, I think about uh, all of the things that matter in life, and it's the simple things that matter in life, helping one another, being kind to others, Showing others a level of dignity and respect that you would want shown to you. And that is what I want to leave you with. And until next week, show 118, you know what's up, right? All right, guys. I love you guys a lot. And thank you again for everything. Uh, and to my people up in Chicago, I miss you guys a lot. Stay warm, please. And I'm definitely thinking about you guys. Uh, to all my friends and family here as well, thank you. I love you all. Thank you for all the extra 15 pounds. And you guys, the listeners, and uh, the people who actually you know hang out with us, uh, thank you as well. I love you all. Thank you so much. And until next week, take care of yourselves, okay? Talk to you later. Bye. <laughs>